Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Saturday, July 23, 1960, was meant to be the start of a relaxing weekend getaway. 49-year-old Frances Lacey was visiting Mackinac Island with her daughter and their extended family. Frances didn't realize that she would never return from the island after encountering someone sinister. Mackinac Island is located in Lake Huron, which lies between Michigan's upper and lower peninsulas. It boasts a rich history dating back centuries, right from when it was first inhabited by Native Americans. The most notable of the indigenous tribes was the Odawa people, who were skilled hunters, gatherers, and fishermen. In the 17th century, European exploration began and the island was transformed into a hub for the fur trade. During the American Revolution and the War of 1812, it became a military outpost due to its strategic location and the presence of Fort Mackinac, which played a pivotal role in both conflicts. In more recent times, the island has become well known for its charming Victorian architecture and quaint streets lined with shops, art galleries, and historic homes. Motorized vehicles were banned from the island in the late 19th century, and even today, no vehicles are allowed except for those belonging to emergency services. Visitors and the island's 500 residents rely on bicycles, horse-drawn carriages, and walking to get around. All of that makes the island sound peaceful and perhaps even serene. But in the 1960s, the long-held sense of safety and tranquility was shattered by a crime that remains unsolved to this day. Frances Lacey was Michigan-born and raised. She grew up in Hastings alongside her twin brother and several other siblings. She was a family woman through and through, and she dreamed of having children to call her own. She was so determined to achieve that dream that as a young woman, she got married to a guy who was all kinds of wrong for her. It wasn't long before the couple got divorced and even less time before Frances was married to her second husband. But that marriage was doomed to fail nearly as quickly as the first. However, two broken hearts didn't put Frances off love, and in 1933, she married her third husband, Ford. Ford was 15 years older than Frances, and his age and experience brought a sense of calm to her life. He was a successful stock and bonds dealer, as well as dabbling in the real estate market. When they first met, Frances was nearing the end of her nursing studies, but after getting married, the desire to start a family grew stronger. Within a year, she had dropped out of school to give birth to their first child, a daughter named Kay. A couple of years later, she gave birth to their son, William. Frances was 5 foot 3 inches and less than 120 pounds, so there was hardly anything to her. But what she lacked in size, she more than made up for in heart. She was a loving and caring mother who doted on her two children. William and Kay's childhoods were stable and filled with love. 
Kay would later describe her mother as a quiet person who didn't make friends easily due to her shy nature. She was incredibly organized and punctual and the kind of person who took care of everyone around her. But the good times were short-lived. Frances was 46 when her life was rocked by tragedy. After 24 happy years of marriage, Ford passed away at the age of just 61. The death of her longtime companion was the start of a dark period in Frances's life. She struggled to get out of bed and she rarely left the house, even to see her adult children. William and Kay supported her as best they could and they hoped that with time the pain of Ford's loss would lessen. Finally, after three agonizing years, Frances began to emerge from under the dark cloud of grief. Kay suggested a trip away would do her good and Frances agreed. They made plans to join Kay's husband Wesley and some of his family on a drive from Dearborn to Mackinac City at the northern tip of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. From there, they would take a short ferry ride over to Mackinac Island and spend a couple of days unwinding and enjoying each other's company. On July 23, 1960, they set off on the first leg of their trip. When they arrived at the ferry dock, the vessel was not ready to depart, so they grabbed a quick breakfast at a nearby cafe. By 8 a.m., the ferry was ready to go and the group lugged their bags on board to make the 8-mile or 12-kilometer trip. Wesley's family had rented a cabin on the outskirts of the island which Frances was invited to stay at, but she didn't want to put anyone out so she booked a room at the Murray Hotel in the township instead. The group were picked up from the ferry building in a horse-drawn carriage and taken to their accommodation to drop off their bags and rest after a long day of traveling. Once everyone was settled in, they hired horses to better explore the rugged beauty of the island. The trip was taking place right on the cusp of the busy tourist season, so the island was humming, but it wasn't packed, and it seemed like the perfect time to experience everything the island had to offer without the crowds. By the early evening, the group was ready for a meal, and they dropped by Francis's hotel room to freshen up. At 6.15 p.m., they walked the short distance to the Wandry restaurant for dinner. Everyone was exhausted, and they finished their meal and left the restaurant before 7 p.m., as they walked back to the hotel where Francis would spend the night, they picked up some fudge and postcards from the island's iconic store, May's Candy Shop. Francis gave her daughter a kiss goodbye and told her she would walk to the cabin to join everyone the next morning. Kay reminded her mother that the walk would take an hour and a half and she suggested taking a horse-drawn carriage for at least part of the way. Francis smiled at her daughter's concern, but she made no promises, only that she would see her before midday. That was the last time Kay saw her mother. The next morning, Kay and Wesley woke up to a beautiful sunrise and clear blue skies. They spent the first few hours of the day relaxing on the shores of Lake Huron while they waited for Frances to arrive from her long walk. But by 11 a.m. there was no sign of her, and Wesley's brother called the hotel to see if she had changed her plans. The hotel kindly informed him that Frances had already checked out. And yet, two hours later, she still had not arrived at the cabin. Kay was already beginning to worry. Her mother wasn't one to be late, and even if she had gotten tired along the way, she wasn't too proud to catch a ride if she needed it. Finally, Kay and Wesley decided to walk back towards the township in hopes that they would stumble across Frances on the route she had most likely taken. But by the time they made it to the Murray Hotel, they hadn't found a single sign of Frances. At that point, Kay's worry turned to panic. There was simply no way her mother would disappear unless something sinister had taken place. 
In a last-ditch attempt to find Francis, they walked back to the cabin taking the less common route, but they found nothing. And as soon as they walked in the door of the cabin, Kay called the state police to report her mother missing. Trooper Herbert Gross was assigned to Mackinac Island on that day. As soon as he received the call, he mounted his police-issue bike and headed out to the cabin. Once he had a description of Francis, he requested his colleagues in the township take a look at her hotel room to see if there was any indication about where she might have gone. The chief of police for Mackinac Island had been in his position for less than two weeks when he received the phone call to look at Francis's hotel room. Before heading upstairs, he spoke to the desk clerk who was on duty that morning. The clerk told him that he thought Francis had left at around 10.30, but unfortunately the checkout slip didn't have a time on it. He hadn't personally spoken to Francis, but he found the key to her room sitting on the front desk and her luggage was sitting in the holding area, so he assumed she had left before then. Because there are no vehicles on the island, visitors often left their luggage at the hotel and collected it on their way to the ferry in the afternoon. When the officer asked to see Francis's suitcase, he found it neatly packed, with three pounds of fudge sitting on the top. Up in her room, he found nothing out of place. The bed was tidy and everything was where it should be for an unoccupied room. The only item of note was an empty six-pack of Black Label beer which he found under the bed. Meanwhile, back at the cabin, Trooper Gross called the Mackinac City Police to establish whether Francis's car was still parked at the ferry dock where she had left it the day before. It was. The trooper and the chief of police concluded that Francis was still on the island, so the next priority was to begin a search. They decided to make use of the police jeep and ambulance, and as the word spread through the tight-knit town, a number of volunteers joined the search on foot and on bicycles. Despite hours of searching, by the time the clock hit 9pm, there was no hint of where Francis had gone after leaving her hotel that morning. When the sun retired for the night, the search was called off and set to resume the next day. By then, a state trooper sergeant from the mainland had promised to come to the island himself in the morning along with extra officers to help search the many remote backwoods and trails on the island. Mackinac Island is two and a half miles long by one and three quarter miles wide, or about four by three kilometers. It's covered in a series of horse trails and wide footpaths. Most of those trails are circular and lead right back into town, so anyone who gets lost on one trail should eventually find themselves back where they began. When the additional officers arrived on Monday morning, they were met with more than 65 local volunteers who had heard about the disappearance. Later that day, they were joined by members of the Coast Guard, the County Sheriff, deputies, and members of a Boy Scout troop who were visiting the island at the time. Everyone was hopeful Frances had simply gotten lost or hurt herself during a walk, but as the hours ticked by, they had to face the possibility that something much worse might have happened. Violent crime on the island was a rarity, and no one wanted to say it out loud, but the fact that Frances had not been seen for more than 24 hours meant it was much more likely that she had met with foul play. While searchers scoured the island, Trooper Gross looked for clues in Frances's past. He started by talking with Kay and Wesley while they were riding horses in the search. The trooper noted that Wesley's family appeared to be unconcerned about Francis's disappearance, and it was only Kay who seemed truly worried about her whereabouts. Kay willingly spoke with the lead investigator to provide more information about her mother. She told the officer all about Francis's history and the death of Ford three years earlier. The trooper needed to understand if there might be any financial motive behind the disappearance. 
Kay outlined the terms of Ford's estate, which left some cash to her and her brother, but the bulk of Ford's real estate holdings were left to his wife. Kay told the officer she believed her mother was worth around $125,000, or $1.2 million in today's money. She also added that if Francis died, the properties would go directly to herself and William. Next up was to establish if there was any reason to believe Francis might have hurt herself. Kay shared that Francis had struggled with periods of depression since Ford's death. She took daily medication, which she referred to as her happy pills. She also smoked one and a half packs of cigarettes a day. Despite that, Kay believed that overall her mother didn't have any emotional problems and certainly none that would indicate she might have hurt herself. Kay added that her mother would have been carrying a distinctive black purse with a white leather interior and bamboo handles. Inside would have been her checkbook, her passport, her social security card, her medication, and a blue wallet. When the interview was over, Kay left on her horse alongside her husband. But as she rode, Kay remembered something that had been nagging her ever since she considered something bad might have happened to her mother. She recalled that Francis had once told her a chilling secret. She did not have the ability to scream. Francis had only discovered that truth when her hair got caught between the rollers of an old-style washing machine and she couldn't reach the power switch to turn it off. As the hair was ripped from her scalp, she realized she was unable to scream for help. It was a terrifying thought. If something had happened to Francis, it would have happened silently. By 10 p.m. on Monday night, bloodhounds had arrived from the mainland to try and track Francis's scent. Starting at the Murray Hotel, each handler was given items of clothing from her luggage. The animals immediately picked up on her scent on Main Street and followed it to the West Lake Shore where they tracked it along a dilapidated boardwalk. The search was looking promising, but then at the end of the boardwalk, the scent disappeared completely. No scent of Francis was found anywhere else on the island except for the cabin where she had spent time with the family on the day they arrived on the island. By then, it was clear that Francis's disappearance was no accident. If it had been, she would have been found by then. After all, on an island with no vehicles, she couldn't have been forced into a car and driven away. Investigators decided they needed to interview everyone on the island to find out what they knew. But by then, the population of the island had swelled into the thousands. And with more people arriving and leaving each day, the task was massive. More officers were shipped over to help, and the police presence grew from 6 to 25 overnight. The idea that someone had not only gone missing, but had possibly met with a violent end was deeply concerning for locals and tourists alike. The only other murder known to have taken place on Mackinac Island was 50 years earlier when an employee at one of the hotels was murdered. That case was also never solved. Speaking to residents of the island was much more straightforward than talking to visitors. Residents of small towns have a much keener eye for things that didn't belong or seemed out of place. There was a carriage driver who reported that on the night of the disappearance, his horses had gotten spooked after picking up a group of tourists from the hotel across the road where Francis was staying. He managed to calm the mares down, and as he looked around to see what had upset them, he noticed a man in the bushes holding a bicycle. The driver could only make out the shape of the man as he was silhouetted against a large boulder. But the figure never moved, and because it was dark, the driver couldn't see any of the man's features. However, he did notice that the bicycle looked different from anything he had seen on the island before. It had a white stripe that ran from the crank to the fork, and it appeared to be an English-made bike. 
After a few moments of reassuring his horses, the driver was able to continue the ride. Then there were two nurses from the medical center who reported that a man had knocked on the door and told them he was a lock inspector the day after the disappearance. Before the staff had an opportunity to respond, the man began to take a closer look at the doors to the office. The nurses felt uncomfortable and they asked him to leave, which he did. But later that afternoon, he returned and asked how much a shot of penicillin would cost him. He was given the price and left without another word. Then in the evening, he returned again and said he wanted to see the dentist. However, when he was told there was a wait, he disappeared for good. Finally, there was Paul Strance. Paul was a 31-year-old army veteran who had served during the Korean War. He had lived on the island intermittently for some time, which happened to coincide with the time frame of when residents had reported a peeping Tom. Paul didn't have a positive reputation and was known for drinking too much and creeping around the downtown area at all times of the day and night. On the Tuesday morning after Francis's disappearance, Paul was brought into the station for questioning. He told the officers that he had been off the island recently but had returned on Saturday, July 23rd, around 5 p.m. He was currently working at the Island House Hotel washing dishes and they provided him a room to stay in. When he was asked about his movements over the previous weekend, he admitted he had been drinking at the Murray Hotel on both Saturday and Sunday nights. When the officer asked him directly whether he knew anything about Francis's disappearance, he became belligerent and defensive. His behavior was suspicious, so the officer asked if they could search his room. To their surprise, Paul agreed. In his room, officers found several books and newspapers about women's anatomy as well as hand-drawn sketches of women. Inside a suitcase, they found a piece of thin rope and some women's pocket mirrors. There was also a gray pinstriped suit that was damp and had pine needles and small stones caught in the cuff. A shirt in the same suitcase had four small red drops between the elbow and the shoulder, which Paul explained were from paint. The officers asked the local doctor to run a simple test to determine if the marks were blood or something else. The test results were negative for blood, so while the items found in Paul's room seemed odd, they weren't proof that he had anything to do with the disappearance. He was released and told to not go far in case investigators needed to speak with him again. The fact that murder on a holiday island is so rare meant that Francis's disappearance was perfect fodder for newspaper articles. As soon as word spread, reporters flocked to the island in almost the same numbers as law enforcement. Kay said in an interview, quote, We were supposed to meet Mother at about 11 o'clock Sunday morning, spend the afternoon together, and then leave for the trip back to Dearborn. I'm going to stay on this island as long as it takes to find her. I'll do it even if it takes two years to find her, and I have to become a beachcomber in the process. But Kay didn't have to wait that long. On the morning of July 24th, a couple caught the ferry to the island for a weekend of relaxing and exploring. At 9.30 a.m., they rented a tandem bicycle and set off to enjoy the sights. They decided to head out of town and follow the Lake Huron shoreline around the southwestern side of the island. Along the way, they stopped to look at the geologic formation known as Devil's Kitchen, and the woman took a short swim while her partner snapped some pictures. As they rounded the bottom of the island and the road turned north, they noticed a purse lying off to the side of the pavement. It was a black purse with bamboo handles which were folded down. The man opened the purse and noticed some papers with the name Francis Lacey inside, so they decided to take it back into town to try to find its owner. 
Afternoon turned into evening, and by the time they got back to the hotel that night, they made a passing mention of the name in the purse they had found. It was Sunday, and Frances was already missing, but her disappearance wouldn't make the news until the following day. So the clerk told them to drop the purse at the police station, but the couple had other plans. They decided to use the details inside the purse to contact Mrs. Lacey directly once they were back on the mainland. Except that plan slipped their minds until they heard reports about the missing woman a few days later. On Thursday, July 28th, the woman called the Detroit Police Department to report what she had found. She was happy to turn the purse over and to detail exactly where it had been found, but she didn't want her name associated with the report, primarily because the man she had been visiting the island with was married and they were involved in an affair. Word of the purse was communicated immediately to officers on the island. They took the police jeep towards the spot where the couple had found the purse. Almost as soon as they stepped out of the vehicle, they noticed a putrid odor permeating the entire area. Only a short distance from the pavement, one of the officers made a peculiar find, a shattered denture plate. The discovery was swiftly relayed to other officers, and the search moved to focus on that section of the island. On the landward side of the pavement was a heavily wooded area. Running parallel to the roadway was a five-foot-high, two-strand wire fence topped with barbed wire. Beyond the fence was an old trail with two pillars standing at the entrance. The trail ran on an uphill gradient for a short distance before turning into a small footpath which led down to the lake shore. That's where one of the officers noticed an old rotting rowboat sitting a few feet from the water. It instantly struck him as the perfect place to hide a body. When he reached the boat, he lifted the bow to reveal a pair of women's dress shoes. One of the shoes was inside a plastic bag and the other was lying on the ground about 12 inches or 30 centimeters away. A few feet from the boat, he noticed two small trees which appeared to have been blown over by the wind. Silhouetted against the trees, he could see something that didn't belong. As he approached it, it became clear that he was looking at human hair. Francis had finally been found. Francis's body was lying on a slope with her head pointed downward. She was on her stomach with her head turned to the right. Her right arm was pulled behind her back with the palm of her hand open while her left arm lay alongside her body. Her shirt was pulled up over her shoulders and her bra was exposed. Her skirt was also pulled up to her hips which left her genitals exposed. When officers looked closer, they noticed that Frances had been strangled to death with her own underwear which were still knotted around her neck. A crime scene investigation began immediately but there was none of the high-tech equipment we're familiar with today. In fact, there wasn't really any equipment at all. The murder had occurred on an island with only three officers on its force and no forensic investigators. It was also late in the evening, so no one would arrive until the following day, so the investigators made do with what they had. The crime scene photographer was an employee from the local hotel, and the coroner was a justice of the peace. Despite the challenges, the team did the best they could under the circumstances. They collected fibers, took samples, and did a thorough search of the area around the body. Once forensic technicians from the mainland had taken their samples in the morning, the body was removed from the island by the Coast Guard. By then, the weekend edition of the local paper was already in residents' hands with the front page declaring, Widow's Beaten Body Found. Frances's autopsy revealed she had been killed soon after eating breakfast on the day she went missing. 
She also had sexual intercourse in the 24 hours prior to her murder, but the medical examiner was unable to determine whether it was consensual or not. As expected, her cause of death was strangulation. Bruising on her neck suggested the killer had used their bare hands at first and then her underwear. Later that same day, Paul Strance was brought back into the station under suspicion of murder. Everyone was sure they were going to get a quick resolution, but Paul repeated his claims that he had nothing to do with the murder and he gave detectives permission to search his room again. No new evidence was found and detectives admitted they didn't have enough evidence to hold him. When word of the discovery of the body was published, tips about possible suspects came rushing in. There was a dishwasher from the Murray Hotel who had unexpectedly quit his job the morning Francis checked out, then a carriage driver who had been spotted near the location where the body was found, and even the son of the woman who owned the cabin where Kay and Wesley had been staying during their visit. Initially, all of the suspect interviews took place on the island, but as the days passed and people returned to their homes on the mainland, detectives from various counties became involved in the investigation. Hundreds of hours were spent on phone calls to individuals, employers, hotels, restaurants, and family members. But as each lead was followed up and fact-checked, it became clear the tips were merely fumbling attempts to make sense of a perplexing and tragic situation. Locals were petrified that a killer was walking amongst them, and they wanted the case to be wrapped up quickly so they could go back to their peaceful and safe way of life on Mackinac Island. Within a week of Francis's death, reporters had linked the murder to another unsolved crime which occurred four months earlier in nearby Illinois. In that incident, three female hikers had been murdered in the Starved Rock State Park. Their badly beaten bodies were found three days after leaving for an overnight hike. Investigators were convinced all three women had also been sexually assaulted, but the bodies were found in a snow-laden cave, so there was very little physical evidence to determine who was responsible. By the time the link to the Starved Rock triple murder was made, the FBI had stepped in to help the Mackinac Island investigation. The search for suspects and information had also spread across the state and then the entire country. By August 4th, 97 tips had been provided to the police, and by the 14th, that number had grown to 129. Every single one was investigated and eventually ruled out. Despite the man-hours, there was no further information about the creepy guy hiding in the bushes who had spooked the horses the night before Francis disappeared, or to explain the guy who had been scoping out the medical center. Two weeks after the murder, the number of actionable tips had dwindled and detectives were no closer to figuring out who was responsible for the homicide. Meanwhile, Kay and her brother William were struggling to come to terms with their mother's death. Kay, in particular, was haunted by a conversation she had with Francis just one day before they left for the island. That morning, she had stopped by and found Francis vigorously cleaning her home. When Kay asked her why, she commented that she wanted it to be clean in case anybody she didn't know came in while she was away. A few minutes later, she stated that she wanted Kay to have her dishes if anything happened to her. Kay was left wondering whether her mother had been threatened or if she had a premonition of her own demise. Kay was interviewed by detectives on a number of occasions, both for information about her mother's history but also to establish whether she was involved in the murder in some way. Throughout the investigation, she was cooperative with the police, and she even agreed to a polygraph which backed up her claim that she had nothing to do with the crime. Kay confirmed that the shoes found under the boat belonged to her mother, as did the purse the visiting couple had discovered. 
She also noticed that the wristwatch Frances always wore was missing from her body. The forensic evidence available to investigators at the time was pretty limited. There were hair fibers which were found on Frances's skirt which didn't belong to her. Some of them were hairs from the scalp and others were pubic hairs. Aside from that, there was a collection of fingerprints from the rotten boat and from Frances's purse. There were also some vaginal swabs which had been collected during the autopsy, but in those days, there was no reliable DNA technology and therefore no way to narrow down the suspect any further. Within a month of the murder, the task force that had once contained more than 20 officers had dwindled to just two. Detectives believed the killer had escaped the island before Francis's body was found, which meant the killer could be anywhere. It was right around that time that the police in Illinois received a confession for the Starved Rock triple homicide. It turned out an employee of the lodge had watched the women head into the park for their hike, which is when he noticed that one of them was carrying a purse and the other was carrying an expensive camera. He decided to steal the purse, but he grabbed the camera instead, and when one of the women realized what he was doing, she hit him in the head with a pair of binoculars. He ran off, but when he realized he had grabbed the camera, not the purse, he ran back to the group and begged them to walk the other way so he could escape. The plan was a trick, and when they walked towards the end of the canyon, he used a rope he had brought from the kitchen to tie them together. He dragged them all to a cave and left, but one of the women got free and she ran up behind him and attacked him. He picked up a branch from the ground and hit her over the head, and when she was out, he went back to the cave and used the club to beat the other two women to death. He also stripped their clothes off to make it look as if they had been sexually assaulted. The confession meant he was able to be eliminated from the investigation into Francis's death. That was due to the fact he was arrested in Illinois the night before the murder had taken place, hundreds of miles away. It was another dead end to add to a list of a hundred dead ends. Within six months, it was clear the murder was destined to become a cold case. The lead detective from the initial investigation still looked over the files from time to time, but everyone was resigned to the fact that unless somebody came forward with new information, the case would never be solved. Occasionally, reporters would run a story about the murder in hopes of triggering a memory or a confession, but by 1963, nothing significant had changed. That was the same year that Kay and Wesley filed for divorce, and by 1964, the case was at a complete standstill. The following year, the murder was officially classified as a cold case. By 1976, the Francis Lacey murder had been cold for 16 years. All evidence and files related to the case were transferred to long-term storage with a note stating, quote, Due to the lack of a suspect, this complaint has been closed at this time. However, if further information is obtained, this complaint will be reopened at that time. In 1984, hope for a resolution was reignited with the establishment of the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, which was made up of three divisions, including the Behavioral Analysis Unit. Behavioral analysis is more commonly known as profiling. It took until 2007 for Francis's case to be reviewed by the FBI. The profile indicated a number of likelihoods about the killer based on the circumstances of the murder. The profile assumed the person responsible was a male in their early 20s at the time of the murder, which meant they would be in their late 60s by 2008. Frances had been struck from behind because the killer was socially incompetent and her body had been concealed so he could escape from the island. The profile noted that the killer was inexperienced because he tried to strangle her first before using her underwear. 
He was likely to be a blue-collar worker with a manual labor job and was also likely to be an abuser of either alcohol and or drugs. The person had a deep-seated hatred for older women stemming from a dysfunctional relationship with his mother. He probably had contact with the police for being drunk in public or being a peeping Tom. They would have very limited sexual experience and the murder was poorly planned and impulsive. In the years since the murder, the killer would likely have chosen jobs which gave him a sense of power such as being a security guard and they would be highly driven by routine. The profile gave new hope to Kay and William that someone would finally be brought to justice, but a rush of tips and leads never transpired. 63 years later and there are no suspects in the case. In more recent years, officials have stated that many of the original case files and forensic evidence collected from the scene have been lost, along with any chance of identifying her killer. Someone sinister was responsible for Francis Lacey's murder, but they will likely never be brought to justice. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.